following podcast contains explicit language. Hide your children. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of December 7th, 2020. On this week's show, we'll talk about the most recent humiliation of the winless New York Jets and whether those rascally J-E-T-S will win in the end. We'll also discuss the Rockets, Wizards, Russell Westbrook, John Wall swap, whether it's as sad as I think it is. And finally, we'll speak with runner and activist Russell Jenkins about his quest to save men's college track programs, which he describes as the only sport in the NCAA where schools cannot profit from Black athlete labor. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm the author of The Queen, the host of Slow Burn Season 4. Also in D.C., Stefan Fatsis, author of Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. How's it going, Stefan? Good, Josh. How are you? Doing swell. With us from Palo Alto, Slate staff writer Joel Anderson. He's the host of Slow Burn Season 3 and the upcoming Season 6 on the L.A. Riots. Hello, Joel. Good morning. So, perfunctory chatter there. I think I'm just going to call it out for what it was, but... The reason for it is that we're going to now get into some animated back and forth about the big hang up and listen news for next week, which is, Joel, you've been working on a special podcast on Michael Jordan's time with the Washington Wizards. It's basically what The Last Dance left out. It ended that documentary series with the 98 Bulls season and then pretended like Jordan never laced them up again. Yeah. But he did. He did. It's the last, last dance, as we've been you know, unofficially calling it. And yeah, me and Melissa, who is our great producer for this podcast, have been putting it together right now. You all have talked me through talking under a blanket and moving <laughs> into a studio. And uh, there's been a lot of work over the last few months, but I think it'll be really cool. And we've got like a lot of great voices, you know. Should I, should I say some of the names of the voices? Yeah, or should I say some of the them? names. Definitely. Sure. Okay. All right. Rachel Nichols, who used to work at the Washington Post um, when Jordan was there. We've got uh, Eitan Thomas, who played for the Wizards when he was there. Brendan Haywood. Like Eitan is the star of this of You this think so? He has some really good audio clips. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Brendan Haywood, Heidi White. So we've got a, we've got a real front line, a good front line uh, for this <laughs> podcast. Real strong. We're we good, good in the paint. But it's a lot of good stuff about what Jordan was like off the court, on the court as well. And it's like a smart revisitation of the criticism that he faced back then and some of the reasons why his time in in D.C. might have been misunderstood. I really learned a lot from it. Yeah, thanks, man. Well, you were right there uh, with all, all along the way, and Stefan presumably is listening a little bit to it over the next <laughs> couple of days. So, yeah, no, man. I, I you know, it, it's one of the things I've been really excited about this year to get an opportunity to work on this, and um, yeah, I think people are really going to enjoy it. And right, it'd be just in time to whet your appetite for basketball season, which you know gets started here in a few weeks. Yeah, for sure. And Stefan, folks will see this in their feeds next Monday in lieu of the usual hang up and listen. But Slate Plus members will get something extra, which will be a conversation among the three of us about this podcast, about Jordan with the Wizards and about um, what everybody's going to hear. So if you want to hear that conversation among the three of us, which will be like, I guess, your Joel, Josh, and Stefan dose for the week, then you need to be a Slate Plus member, which you can do at slate.com slash hangup plus. That's where you subscribe if you are not currently subscribed. My promise to you is that I'll try to wedge in Taysom Hill for our listeners. So <laughs> We need that every week. That's going to be a separate podcast someday. Right. <laughs> right. 
Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. On Sunday, November 6th, 1970, at Shea Stadium in New York, Daryl LaMonica of the Oakland Raiders threw a 33-yard touchdown pass to Warren Wells with one second remaining for a 13-13 tie that, with the extra point by 43-year-old George Blanda, became a 14-13 win. On November 6, 2020, at MetLife Stadium in New Jersey, Derek Carr of the Las Vegas Raiders threw a 46-yard touchdown pass to Henry Ruggs III with five seconds remaining for a 30-28 lead that, with the extra point by 25-year-old kicker Daniel Carlson, became a 31-28 win. Time is, in fact, a flat circle. There are no extant reports on whether the 1970 Jets blitzed eight players in a cover zero defense. That's man-to-man coverage and no safety help. Photos indicate otherwise. Two Jets collided in the end zone with rookie cornerback Early Thomas whose name I always loved, accidentally tipping it forward to Warren Wells. But that's what the 2020 Jets did. According to ESPN, over the last 15 seasons, in 252 pass plays in similar situations, score, distance, and time, this was the only time a team had used that alignment. After the game, Derek Carr said, I couldn't believe they all-out blitzed us. I was thankful. In the long run, Jets fans may be thankful too. Gang Green is 0-12 and on a glide path to 0-16 and the number one draft pick, presumably Clemson quarterback Trevor Lawrence. Before we talk about whether the Jets are tanking for Trevor, let's discuss their spectacular hilarity. Josh, it is rare to see a single play that so perfectly encapsulates a team's futility and perhaps its history as this one. Yeah, I agree with you, though. It just seems impossible to disaggregate the play from the Jets' larger project here and the conspiracy theories about how they're trying to lose and trying to get the number one pick and trying to get Trevor Lawrence. Because ultimately, for the franchise and for Jets fans, it was better for this to have happened than for it not to have happened. The whole thing makes so little sense because the Jets made a big comeback to be in position to blow the lead in the end. And yet, there's no logical reason why you would have done what the Jets and their coordinator, Greg Williams, did on that last play. You laid out the history, Stefan, of 15 years, 252 pass plays, where no team has ever thought that this was a good idea to send everyone and leave Henry Ruggs with his 4.27 Joel Anderson 10-year-old-esque speed one-on-one with an undrafted rookie. I mean, it is like (laughs) ludicrous, but that's what they did. So what we're left with is to think either this is the dumbest thing that any team has ever done, which Jets, so that's in the realm of, of possibility, or they're like so clever in terms of how they're trying to lose these games that they were actually trying to win it until the last five seconds. 
Joel, which of these explanations <laughs> makes more sense to you? I mean, I I can't imagine. Can I also say, but before you start, like the one of the the Jets safeties, uh, this guy May. Marcus May called out Greg Williams after the game. It was like that was a bad play call, and so it wasn't like the the guys on the team were like, yeah, you know, you don't you don't usually hear that from a player calling out a coach in the immediate aftermath of the game. Right. So, I mean, we know that Greg Williams is the one that made this blitz call, so it's not a surprise that it was stupid, right? And <laughs> you know that as a Saints, you know that as a Saints fan, Josh. You know all about Greg, Greg Williams, Williams of Bounty Gate of Bounty fame. Gate fame. Greg Williams of Kill the Head and the Body Will Die fame. Isn't it also did Greg Williams also go 1 in 15 as a head coach as well one year? Am I getting- he was a Bills head coach and did not have a a very uh, impressive record, yeah. but he was. I think three and thirteen was his worst year ever. But he's had a very l- good and long run of success as a defensive coordinator in the NFL, dating back to his days with the Houston Oilers. <laughs> so you know this this dude has been around for a long time. Football's changed a lot since the Houston Oilers were around, <laughs> and uh, maybe that's that that's a sort of a testament to how long he's been in the game. And I understand what Greg Williams is trying to do there that. You don't want a guy to just sit back there, you know, pick around and get a roll. You want to, you want him to rush him. You want to rush Derek Carr, who's not great at handling pressure, and make him make a bad decision or get rid of the ball ahead of time. But I mean, you had, as you mentioned, an undrafted rookie corner who ran a four-five-eight at the combine against the guy who was the fastest dude at the combine this past year, and it's just like. I mean, Marcus May is right, man. You don't often hear coach, you know, players say this explicitly, but it's really on Greg Williams, man. Like, you can't put guys in that position. And I, I don't think, like, so to answer your question, Josh, I don't think that they did that intentionally because there has to be a more dignified way of losing than that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, and, and Greg Williams and Adam Gase, the head coach, are going to get fired, like, they don't have any reason to want to be part of this tanking project. And the players, like the way the tanking works, like players are trying their hardest and it's just like the front office or whoever puts a product out on the field that isn't going to succeed, but the players aren't trying to lose. Right, yeah. You put out a product, when you're trying to tank, you put out an undrafted free agent rookie corner who runs a 4.58, right? Like, mm-hmm. and, and you've got a fifth-round pick opposite that guy starting there. And then, in, and then in the secondary, the only guy with more than nine games of experience is that safety that called out, you know, Greg mm-hmm. Williams. So that, that's how you tank. You just have not enough talent, and you let that overwhelm you. You wouldn't, like, put something like that on tape and have people, like, actually – you know, question your, your football intelligence, which is what Greg Williams and Adam Gase did. And I mean, yeah, I mean, it looks stupid. It looks so stupid that you would think it was intentional, but it was, I mean, I, I have to believe that that was unintentional, that they did not want that to happen, that they did not expect that to happen. Right, because it's all predicated, tanking in the NFL is predicated on believing a system-wide conspiracy theory, tanking on individual plays. It's it's predicated on believing that coaches want to lose and that players are instructed to lose. Uh, Emmanuel Acho, the former linebacker in the NFL, had a Twitter video where he was laughing watching the last play um, and says the Jets were directed to lose this game and there's no other explanation. Yeah, I don't buy 
buy that at all. I mean, Greg Williams wants to continue to be employed in some capacity in professional football, and those Jets defenders want to have jobs going forward, too. They don't want to be part of this because they're not going to be part of the rebuild, a lot of these guys. There's no incentive for them to lose on purpose. So this, to me, was just an arrogant coach saying, fuck it, we're going to do this. This is going to work. We're going to surprise them. And this is the, like, just throwing the cards in the air and hoping that three aces land heads up on the floor. I mean, Um, on the one hand, that's true. Like, this was the, like, most Leroy Jenkins moment in NFL (laughs) history. But on the other hand, it's like what Greg Williams does every time. And so it's not like it was even that unpredictable and greg williams is just known for recklessness and arrogance and so, right, so it's fuck just like, it is in your playbook this makes sense <laughs> it's like him him being himself and again i would say this and i mean it was stupid like like it, I, there's a reason that defenses don't do this in the nfl but the idea that he did something that was so unorthodox so out of the box i can understand saying Maybe this will catch them off guard, you know? Maybe maybe, maybe they won't be expecting it, and maybe he'll throw the ball away. Maybe we'll get to the quarterback. But th- that's the thing. But, Joel, it was unorthodox in, like, the direction of manliness. It was like, right. we're going to send everybody because we're so right. tough. Right. Yeah, There's no. a conceit. There's a conceit, Joel, that this is going to surprise them. You know, you said that you want to catch them off We're going to surprise them with our surprise play that we always <laughs> run because we're Greg Williams. The, the smartest play in this situation is to sit everybody back and bat the ball down in the end zone because right. that has the highest chances of success. No, right. And, you know, and for all of this, I mean, for all of this, this blitz he called and going after the quarterback – Nobody registered a pressure on that play. Like that's the that's the embarrassing thing too. It's like you did all of this and you didn't even you didn't even ruffle Derek Carr's feathers. You know what I mean? Like he just got a chance to get the ball off clean. Well, the the other the other embarrassing part was that they had one guy sort of sit in the middle of the field, keeping an eye on Derek Carr. <laughs> the spy. As if, as if, yeah, spy. As if Derek Carr was going to run sixty yards to the end zone. Oh man. So we mentioned Adam Gase. He came over from the Dolphins with the reputation of being an entirely undeserved reputation (laughs) of being some quarterback guru. And then Ryan Tannehill became like a really great NFL player who got a massive contract immediately after leaving Adam Gase and going to Tennessee. And now here, you know, the entire reason that you have Gase come and run your franchise is because you have this promising young quarterback in Sam Darnold, who's 23, comes out of USC, has all the talent in the world, we're told. And now Gase is 7-20. and 20, And he said uh, in the $64,000 pyramid category of things a coach says right before he's fired, I came here to help him, help him develop his career, and we haven't been able to do that. So, you know... This is like a, another thing that you never hear people say. The Jets are like uh, leading the league in this category. Like a coach who presumably wants to be employed and because it's the NFL and he's white, probably will be uh, employed again like five minutes from now. But, it, you know, who's a quarterback guru saying, I took a really talented quarterback and now he's worse. Like that's that seems like a pretty startling, if accurate, admission. Yeah, I mean, that's the really disappointing thing because it it, it sort of highlights the idea that when you get drafted into the NFL, 
the situation you're drafted into can determine the course of your career, the arc of your career, as much as like your actual talent, right? And you could just look at Sam Darnold and say, oh, that guy's never had a fighting chance. Like, we don't actually know how good he is because they've not surrounded him with enough talent. They've not surrounded him with uh, a schematic advantage, you know, to use the parlance of the dear Charlie Weiss. So, yeah. So, I mean, that's... I, my hope for Sam Darnold is that he gets to start over somewhere else, that he gets the, you know, I guess the Teddy Bridgewater reboot, you know, that he gets to go back up somewhere for a year behind, you know, an experienced veteran and then get a chance to start under a smarter, better coach in a better run franchise because they really, you know, they've really ruined him. And I had a chance to see that when I covered the Houston Texans many years ago when they had a David Carr and it was the same deal. They just got him beat up. They didn't, you know, they did not protect him. They did not give him right. enough talent. Although they did have Andre Johnson, which, you know, that's, you know, that's that's, that's talent, right? But they they didn't give him what he needed to succeed, and we'll never actually know if he was any good. And my hope for Sam Darnold is that he gets out and that Trevor Lawrence never has to play a down for Adam Gase, which, I mean, that's obviously not going to happen. And this is one of the counter-arguments and criticisms of tanking in the NFL, too. If you've got someone like... Sam Darnold, whom you want to develop, and you are either deliberately or sort of on the sly rolling out an inferior product in hopes of getting a number one draft pick, well, you're squelching his development and you're putting players at risk. Mm -hmm. Um, That was the case with Carr in Houston. That was the case with Tim Couch in Cleveland when they were awful and he got beat up and sacked constantly and never developed. And there have been other examples of that in the NFL too. And it points out the differences, I think, in tanking in the NFL versus tanking in, say, the NBA. I mean, tanking has gotten a sort of, if not a terrible reputation, it's sort of, you know, desirable in some corners. You know, the Sam Hinkie glorification, the Astros, the Cubs, but it doesn't work quite the same way in the NFL as a bunch of writers have analyzed in the last few years. Mackay Becton, the right tackle for the Jets uh, rookie, was apparently put into a game in week four when he was injured and got more injured. And so there's even precedent for players being put in, in danger on the 2020 Jets team. It's not just uh, notional. That's their most recent first-round draft pick, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, that's an institutional problem where you're not protecting your assets. You know what I mean? Like, that's like if you're Trevor Lawrence and you're looking at that, you're like, why would I want – like, I can get rid of the coaches or whatever, but that same institutional framework is still there. Why would I want to go play for them? And this is a team that is so incompetently run and the leadership at the top – is so misguided that it lends itself to conspiracy theories. I mean, Bill Barnwell wrote much earlier in the season that the best thing for the organization might be to keep Adam Gase around through the end of the year, given that the overmatched coach hasn't come close to winning a football game this season. And it's hard to think of another reason why you would have had Gase around, if not to like lead the march into the, the cellar and into the number one spot in the NFL draft. But the, like this is a front office that gave an enormous contract to Le'Veon Bell, the running back, and then released him and got nothing in return. They did the same thing with Tremaine Johnson, a defensive player. The owner of the team, Woody Johnson, has been Trump's ambassador to Britain, and he's off there doing uh, you know, whatever one does as Donald Trump's ambassador to, to Britain. And so you have coaches, general manager, ownership that either seems checked out or really clearly not just bad at their jobs, but the worst at their jobs in the entire league. 
And so that I feel like is the transition to if you're Trevor Lawrence and you're looking at this, do you refuse to go play for this team if they draft you? Doesn't Trevor Lawrence have the option of going back to Clemson for one more year? Yeah, he can. He's a a junior. And I mean, also eligibility. I mean, every player in the NCAA gets free eligibility. So even if if he was a senior, he could go back. Right. And that would be the ultimate Jets uh, outcome, wouldn't it? For them to go 0-16 and then Lawrence to take one look at this and go, yeah, I think I'll uh, go play Alabama one more time. I mean, it's what they it's what they deserve, isn't it? Yeah, it's completely what they deserve. They're an embarrassment. Why would you, as the best and most marketable talent in the sport, want you? You obviously wouldn't choose to go to the Jets. You would be forced to go there because they draft you. But he doesn't have to go there if he doesn't want to. I, I guess you could be if you're Trevor Lawrence. You could say, "Well, I'm me, and I've won everywhere I've gone, and that's in New York." And if I win in New York, if I win for the Jets, then I will be a beloved, you know, figure in the game for forever. You know, um, that that's one way of looking at it. But I also don't think as a quarterback, first of all, if you're a great quarterback, you're going to be great no matter what. And you're going to get the attention and the accolades no matter where you play for the most part. And it's never been a bad thing for any quarterback to refuse to go somewhere. You know, it worked for Eli Manning. It worked for John Elway. I can't think of a time in which this has backfired where guys like you guys suck so much that I just can't I can't risk my career on you know what I'm saying on on how bad you are. So if I were Trevor Lawrence, I don't th- you know, he doesn't have to go back and play for free at Clemson for another year. He can just say, "You know what? You can do whatever the hell you want, but I'm not going to be playing for you." So, uh, you know, he can make- just sell ads on Instagram. That's right. <laughs> That's right. He can be an influencer. Take advantage of his name, name, image and likeness. Well, like Jim Kelly is a as an example I didn't remember until I was just just doing research for this this very discussion, which is he refused to play for the Bills, went to the USFL, then the USFL. Ooh, ooh. Like, you know who he played for in, in, in USFL, by the way? The Houston Gamblers. That's right. That's right. Go ahead. All and right. then then when the gamblers <laughs> ceased to exist, he's like, all right, I guess I'll go to Buffalo now. So we could always just do that. He, you know, what's preventing him from playing, playing for the Jets uh, years down the line? Stefan, when, when we were talking about the risks here, we didn't mention the most recent number one pick, mm. uh, Joe Burrow, who went to the Bengals, and they're like ass offensive line, and he now has a torn ACL, screwed up knee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, the, fo- the that's optimist- a football thing. That's a football thing, though. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, but if your offensive line sucks, he was getting killed back there. Forty-eight yeah, times a season, but David, I mean, wait, David the risk Carr, of injury David, yeah, David, you're you're caving for David Carr, but not for uh, Joe Burrow. Yeah. I mean, I you know, I mean, the Joe Burrow was having a pretty view, good season. Okay, he He's was like, yeah, yeah. right, but he'd also been sacked nine million times. The optimists' view is that the Jets fire the general manager, they fire the head coach, everything is starting fresh, and Trevor's Lawrence's agent says, "Let's take the money and go there and take over New York and make them into a good team in five years." I thought NFL you were going to say Trevor Lawrence's agent gets named the the general <laughs> yeah, manager. That, that could help too. Um, <laughs> NFL team, the NFL is structured for teams to. Turn Turn things around quickly. The Jets have been incapable of doing that, of course. So if you're feeling optimistic and that I am going to be a Hall of Fame quarterback and I can do this, then maybe you say this is a challenge I'm willing to accept. That's pretty naive, but who knows? Well, you're, you're like Baker with Cleveland. You know what I mean? Like Baker, like right now, sure. you know, he wanted to go to Cleveland and look how it's working out go. for him right now. Yeah. Yeah. What I was going to say is the last two teams to go on, winless, 2008 Lions made the playoffs in 2011, 2017 Browns are going to make, or it looks like mm-hmm. they're going to make the playoffs in 2020. So that's not a long time. Jets 2023. Yeah, man. It could happen. You know, I mean, you know, shout out to Ken O'Brien and, and Freeman McNeil. You know, it's a, <laughs> they're, they're, I know Jets fans are overdue. 
All right. I'm just seeing this from Adam Schefter, and I don't know if you guys have seen this. So we're we're recording uh, authentic first uh, reactions for to some Jets news. Per Adam Schefter, Joel and Stefan, Jets fired DC Greg Williams per source. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! So I mean, apparently they weren't happy with the uh, with the zero blitz. Right. I mean, you can't have that guy back in that locker room after that. So good riddance, Greg Williams. I'm sure he'll be. He'll, I'm but sure maybe he'll be you somewhere. do want him back in the locker room. Dissension. <laughs> you don't want the team to come together and bond over this rational decision making. Clearly, this decision was made after they heard what Rex Ryan said earlier. On Monday, dumbest call I've ever seen. Been around the thing for fifty-eight years. Wow! That's I thought you were going to say I'm really dumb, ever. and I've I've never done yeah. anything this dumb. Yeah, it's somebody, somebody, dumb, somebody who's dumb. I know, I know dumb. <laughs> There's a time and place for cover zero. That sure ain't it. It's just stupid. Pretty much sums it up. Rex Ryan, good job. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. John Wall, the superstar, former number one pick, who's one of the fastest, if not the fastest guy ever with a basketball in his hands. He's coming off a year in which he averaged 23.1 points and 10.7 assists per game. And Russell Westbrook, he just had one of the best years ever in pro basketball. 31.6 points, 10.7 boards, 10.4 assists. Yeah, the dude averaged a triple-double. This trade, Wall, for Westbrook, straight up, you know, with a draft pick thrown in. It's not arguably the biggest in NBA history. It is the biggest, full stop. Books will be written about it, plays staged, operas sung, sports television networks programmed from now until the sun explodes. And that is how I would have described John Wall for Russell Westbrook three years ago, (laughs) when Wall had just led the Wizards to the Eastern Conference semis. Westbrook had won the MVP award for the Oklahoma City Thunder. We're also young then, and so were they, three years younger, to be precise. Now Wall is 30 and headed to the Houston Rockets, where I'll hope to come back after missing a season and a half due to heel surgery and then a ruptured Achilles. Westbrook is 32, moving to the Wizards, his third team in three years, after his partnership with James Harden flamed out in Houston. Joel, this trade for me is a reminder of how uh, immortals can become mortal very quickly in sports. And for a lot of NBA fans and writers, Wall and Westbrook are no longer even talked about as players. They're quote-unquote bad contracts that need to be offloaded so their teams can have a chance to compete again. And now um, the Jets can get the number one pick in the draft. Oh, wait. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm still on the last, the last segment. But um, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, there's a piece of this that affects the teams that we can talk about in a minute. But, you know... One thing that's been really interesting that I've thought about as this has happened is how, like, NBA stars can't really enjoy earning the Supermax salary anymore. Like, if you're not... (laughs) If, if you're if you're not if you're not LeBron, if you're not, you know, Anthony Davis, if you're not one of those top five, six, seven guys, then the minute you sign that contract, you become an albatross and people start referring to you in terms of 
the money a team owes you rather than like the actual value that you bring any one team, right? You know, just thirty five earning thirty five million dollars a year, it's yeah. just not as fun as it used to be. Yeah, it's well, just a, I mean, you know, it's a major bummer. I'm I'm sad when I, when I earn thirty five million. All, all, all I'm saying is that uh, you know John Wall's done more for DC than any senator ever has. Shout out to Mike Pesca, uh, but you know, <laughs> like Mike Pesca. But no, but yeah, so yeah, I mean, I I, you know, I, I think that's kind of the thing is that once. Once these guys sign these contracts, and if you're not LeBron, if you're not Steph Curry, it becomes an anchor around the team. And so you're looking at a situation where, you know, the moment that John Wall signed that contract, the moment Russell Westbrook signed that contract, within a year, it's like, oh, man, those are bad contracts, and we've got to be able to do something with them. We're going to have to move them. And so you end up in a situation where the Rockets ship Russell Westbrook to the Wizards and the Wizards ship John Wall and nobody and everybody thinks it's sad. These are still two good basketball players, but we're weighing it against the money they made when they, you know, tallied those numbers that you, you know, you mentioned in the intro, Josh, as opposed to like what those guys might be able to bring today. They'll still probably be good basketball players. Like nobody thinks that Russell Westbrook or John Wall are bad basketball players, but the way we look at it is that, oh man, those guys are hugely overpaid and they'll never be able to justify the value of that contract. Yeah, like points per dollar. Yeah. Is, is not, not great. Yeah, yeah. Except that in except that with these two players in particular, they're really different arcs here. We wouldn't be saying this about John Wall if he hadn't torn his Achilles tendon and hurt his heel. We probably would still be saying this about Russell Westbrook because he's been on three teams in three years and there have always been questions about whether he elevates the overall quality of a team or whether he is on the court uh, an albatross despite his numbers, despite the fact that some of his teams have done really well, despite the fact that some of his wingmen have also performed really well on the court. So there are two different storylines around max contracts and what happens to players when they get to age 30 with or without injuries. The other thing about Wall and Westbrook that's kind of nuts to think about is they're two of the most amazing players in terms of speed, athleticism, and combining that with like getting their teammates involved, like averaging more than 10 assists per game. Like they're the total package in terms of what you would want on your team from an array of skills combined with being entertaining. Mm-hmm. And so they're like box office draws. They're great, you know, individual with individual highlights. Couple of the surliest motherfuckers you'll ever, you know, want to see play too, right? Like just that they snarl th- as they play, basically. Good snarls Mm -hmm. as well. And just, I guess, the bigger issue that I keep circling back to, and Joel, you were circling this a bit as well, is just the kind of, even if you're not sad for them because they're making lots of money, but just the unfairness of the way that aging works in, in sports and how players who are so remarkably skilled and give us like so much like amazement as we watch them can be talked about as if they're garbage yeah. just within a couple of years when they're past their prime. And, and as you noted, Joel, even when they're not past their prime, not necessarily past their prime. But that's the thing here, isn't it? Were the assessment of this trade is less about on-court ability than it is about some other 
characteristics of these individual players. Well, it's about how, well, all, it's case, about how we're all general managers now. Yeah, and it's, you know, in Wall's case, it's about injuries and we don't know what he's going to look like when he comes back. And he's been superseded by Bradley Beal as the focus of, of the team in Washington. And in Westbrook's case, it's about, well, he sulks and hasn't really complimented or led the teams that he's been on in recent years to great heights in the Western Conference that is stacked in a playoff run that was going to be impossible no matter who he was surrounded with unless he was on, you know, the Warriors during their peak years. So Westbrook actually had a pretty good season last year for a 32-year-old. I mean, again, small sample size, short year. He averaged 27 points. He had eight rebounds, seven assists. He shot better from the field than he ever has in his career. And yet we've diminished them because of the uncertainty in Wall's case about how he will rebound from his injuries and in Westbrook's case because of advanced analytics and the perception that he's not worth it. The advanced analytic of being the worst shooter in basketball. <laughs> yeah. And, and a I, terrible defender too. I, and I think the thing about Westbrook is that people are reading a lot into how badly he played in the bubble, which I mean, does demand some context because not only did, you know, like a lot of people, he was coming off of an extended absence, but he also like had contracted COVID. And we still mm-hmm. don't know. We still don't have a way to sort of like hold in our heads that, hey, man, COVID can affect even elite athletes in their performance. We don't know how yet. Um, but the last time we saw Russell Westbrook, he was a he was a fucking mess as a Rockets fan. I was like, man, I don't mm-hmm. want Russell Westbrook to have the ball in his hands anymore. Um, which is something you would never think you would say about a guy like that. But like that's how he looked. And so I think that's what people are judging it on. But I mean, if you like as a Rockets fan, you have to think that this is just again another contract. You know, James Harden signed one of those supermaxes. He was the third guy to get one of them. And you have to think that this is all just a prelude to whatever, you know, it's it's first a move to placate Harden to see if they can get him to want to stick around, right? And that's sad because he's not going to want to stick around. Right. Russell Westbrook didn't want to be there. So he's like, hey, fine, I'm fine with John Wall. John Wall want to come. So they're going to see if that's going to work. And then when that doesn't work, this is the, the you know, a, a milestone on the way to whatever the next iteration of the team is going to be at, right? And so, you know, the it's pretty clear that the Rockets are in decline, and that they're not going to be a better team. As, as much as I like John Wall, as much as I want to see John Wall play, nobody nobody can argue that John Wall is a better basketball player than Russell Westbrook, and especially now, right? Like What you're just hoping is that it's a good fit, that John Wall wants to be there, and that maybe they can tinker a little bit, and maybe the Rockets can make some noise. But, I mean, you know, that's all hoping. The Rockets did not win the trade, but this is not about winning that trade. This is about rebuilding the foundation there one way or another. And then what if you're the Wizards? You know, what are you hoping for? You're hoping that Westbrook can compliment Bradley Beal and not be a total ball hog and a volume shooter whose numbers are terrible. And at the same time, this is a team that's got some young players that look pretty promising. How effective can he be in bringing them into the game? Well, there's this issue in the NBA, I think more so than in our other major professional sports where there are certain franchises that are on a long-term path to, at best, being a playoff team that has no chance to win a championship. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about this in the context of like the process, Sixers, and just this kind of cultural belief that if you're not first, you're last, that if you're not on the path to winning a championship, then it's better to like bottom out 
and try to lose on purpose than it is to like go for the six seed and like maybe get into the second round as the Wizards did at their best when when John Wall was there. But so that's the question then. If you're the Wizards, it's like, okay, you get Westbrook and like on, in your best case, you're like the seven seed in the East. And like, what are you doing? Okay, maybe what you're doing is you're going to be in the playoffs and be entertaining and, mm-hmm. and like in a, in a place where, you know, as Joel will get into in the uh, Jordan pod uh, next week, like that is not the norm to be like entertaining playoff team in DC. I don't necessarily have the sense that that's what the like goal is of the the franchise that like that's what they're saying is like we're we're saying our ceiling is the seventh seed. Um, but if that's the outcome, it's not like the worst thing that's ever happened in the history of sports. And I also just want to ask Joel, what is the fill in the blank in this progression? Chris Paul, Russell Westbrook, John Wall, who's next is like Clyde Frazier. Yeah, Steve, right. Steve I mean, Nash. I mean, where, where, where do we go next? Well, you, you, you can even precede Chris Paul with Dwight Howard <laughs> in this chain. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I don't know. I guess we could, we haven't really had a, a swing person yet. So maybe, you know, like George Gervin. Did George Gervin still <laughs> no, I mean, But no, but yeah, it's just, you know, high volume guy. He's still in his prime. Yeah, a guy that can't get along with James Harden. And, you know, man, a few years ago when the Rockets broke up, James Harden and Chris Paul, my theory was that, man, make those guys work it out. Because, you know, this always happens. I've been a Houston Rockets fan long enough to remember when Akeem Olajuwon won it out of town uh, in like the early 90s. And they just held on to him. They made it work. And then they won two championships out of it. And I think sometimes teams just throw in the towel a little too early. And so, like, now you got to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yeah, just let him be mad. Let him be. Yeah, mad. let them be mad. They're gonna, they'll, they'll, they'll figure it out. I think uh, they're adults. So you have a point now where James Harden didn't want to play with Chris Paul, and or Chris Paul didn't want to play with James Harden. Then Russell Westbrook didn't want to, and now we're with John Wall. But we've like progressively gotten worse players at each stage of the <laughs> game. You know what I mean? So it's just like, well, I guess like you know who I, you know I don't know. Is it going to be you know? Uh, Ricky Rubio or somebody like that. I don't know. Oh, man, no, no, no. No, the trade that has to happen is John Wall for Kyrie Irving. Oh my God. I just I can't. Well, that would that would reverse the trend of uh the, the players getting worse every time. All right. I think I would like to be self-indulgent here and end this segment on a story that I don't know if you know this, Stefan. You definitely have not heard this one, Joel. But if and if you do know it, Stefan, it's such a long time ago that maybe you've forgotten. But in 2010. I did a freelance piece for Men's Health about John Wall, which is like one of the few freelance sports things I've I've ever done. Yeah. And also like one of the only times I've ever done a piece where I like hung out with a star athlete and and wrote about it, which was just a very weird experience. Like we went to some fancy hotel. I think it was like the Ace Hotel in New York. And I had like breakfast with him and that like his, you know, team was, was at a table, like a few tables over. What did he he have? Like a young, what did he have to eat? I do not remember, but let's say, uh, pancakes, uh, eggs and pancakes. I'm, you know, and it's not the lead of the story, which I just called up and I'm a little disappointed that it is. I was going to say, is he, is he, is he he picked at a chef salad, you know, please, please do not, please (laughs) do not read from that. I'm sure it's bad and I'd be embarrassed, but like young guy, number one pick coming out of Kentucky, like the probably biggest story in the you know, in the NBA, coming into the NBA that offseason. It was like, you know, he was the man. And so I'm sitting here at this hotel in this booth with John Wall, and a guy comes up to the table, as somebody does um, when you're, like, with a celebrity. And he goes, this this person, 
are you Josh Levine? What? <laughs> what? And I was like, yeah. And he said, I love your podcast. I shit you not. Really? This is like one of the only times I've ever been recognized in public as the like voice from Hang Up and Listen. This is like a year after we started doing the show. And the guy came up and said to me while sitting with John Wall, I love your podcast, and then walked away. Wow. What did John Wall think of that? I th- he probably thought it was like a come on. It was like a I was playing a prank on him <laughs> and like trying to make myself look cool. But I like I don't remember who this person was. I did not set it up. It was one of the stranger things that's ever happened to me. Um, but that is a true story. Show me yourself, and John person. Wall. Write to hangupatslate.com if that, if that was you, if you're that person, if you're still listening, because <laughs> I would love to know who you were. But what made you want to do that? I think you're selling your story short, though, Josh, because at the end of the story, it does include the John Wall workout because it's okay. Men's Health Magazine. Oh, okay. Crunch and right, punch, well, medicine right. ball throw, plank work at walkout. He made all that up. There's no, he's not doing. I think that we shit. should Get include a link to the story. Yeah. We will. Oh, we will link to it on our show page. I would not deprive our listeners of that. Hey, I welcome you to Houston, John Wall. If you're ready to, you know, if you need any advice on where to go eat, live, whatever, hit me up. If you happen to hear this, because you know, turkey, turkey like turkey like hut. We can go start there. J- James Harden probably already took you there, to be honest. So. You know, it would be great if you guys went out to breakfast though, and some dude walked up to you and said, "Are you Joel Anderson?" Oh man, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> could happen. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about an insane week in college football, even by 2020 standards, one in which BYU traveled cross-country at the last possible minute to play the game of the year against Coastal Carolina. To hear our conversation about that, you have to be a Slate Plus member. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. The cancellation of the 2020 men's basketball tournament due to the coronavirus pandemic was a financial catastrophe for the NCAA. March Madness generates more than 70% of the more than $1 billion in annual revenue. So instead of distributing $600 million to over 1,200 schools, the NCAA was forced to reduce its payout to $225 million. That triggered a wave of cost-cutting measures by athletic departments. Last month, ESPN pegged the number of NCAA sports programs cut since March at 352, and it's entirely possible that there's been a lot more since then. Amid this unprecedented loss, a former Princeton runner, Russell Dinkins, noticed that those cuts disproportionately targeted men's track teams. In a profile of Dinkins that ran in the New York Daily News last week, he pointed out that 92% of black male Division I athletes are in football, basketball, and track. He said, if you cut track, you're cutting one of the few sports where black athletes take advantage of athletic opportunities, which provide a distinct pathway to admissions. Russell Dinkins is our guest on Hang Up and Listen today. Thanks for joining us, Russell. Thank you. So in the past five months, you've worked to save men's track teams at William & Mary, Brown, and Minnesota. Now you're working on Clemson. And let's listen to a clip real quick from a video promoting your campaign there. 
so in keeping with their tradition, Clemson is exploiting black labor for its own benefit. College athletics should be about educational opportunities via sport. However, by cutting track, Clemson is saying one thing. We only value black student-athletes if we can make money from them. Russell, do you think these cuts at Clemson and other schools are targeted or just an unfortunate consequence of increasingly difficult decisions? That's a really good question. I do not necessarily know if they're targeted or not. You know, that's not necessarily something that I'm really focused on. What I'm focused on is the impact. And so whether or not it's targeted or not, the impact is that they are cutting they're only non-revenue producing black athletes. And it's not even close. When you look at the percentages, um, Minnesota, University of Minnesota, which was slated to cut both their indoor and outdoor teams, they were going to be cutting 75% of their non-revenue producing black athletes. At Clemson, they're slated to cut 67% of their non-revenue producing black athletes and cutting, well, black male athletes rather. And by cutting uh, the men's track team, Clemson in particular will be cutting 3% of their total black male population at their entire school. And so the impact is pretty stark. Yeah, Russell, those numbers are really stark and worth flagging because, you know, when we watch college sports, the things that get watched most often are men's basketball and football. And there are a lot of black athletes in those sports. But the majority of um, NCAA Division I college athletes are not black and it's 67% of NCAA athletes are white. Is that right, Russell? Right. So 67% overall. So when you include all three divisions, if you just focus on D1, it's about 61, 62%. Either way, it's still really high. Um, and then some of these sports that uh, at some of these schools have not been marked for uh, cuts, uh, like at the University of Minnesota and at Clemson, baseball in particular, tends to be very, very homogenous tends to be about 80%, uh, 70 to 80% white. And at both uh, University of Minnesota and at uh, Clemson, uh, both of their baseball teams, at least for the 2019-2020 season, were almost exclusively white. And these teams, in both cases, lost more money than track and field. So this isn't necessarily to, to blame baseball, but it's just to say that these schools, when they note financial difficulty, it doesn't necessarily ring to be completely... Uh, true when they are not cutting uh, a sport that costs them more money. Yes, baseball does produce more revenue than track and field, but its expenses are higher. So when you take uh, the resulting balance, the the leftover money uh, or the amount of money that's uh, being spent on baseball at the end of the day is more. (laughs) Uh, You know, uh, uh, there's a greater loss, uh, about $2 million um, plus loss. That is something that needs to be considered, um, you know, when we're having these discussions, when these schools are looking at these cuts. And my view is that uh, these schools really don't necessarily need to engage in most of these schools don't need to engage in these cuts if they decide to allocate their resources in different ways. I think what you're driving at is that schools need to be put on notice here. You say in an editorial that you wrote, an op-ed you wrote in the Minneapolis Star Tribune, how these schools aren't sort of being conscious of what they're doing, that they're propping up sports that are predominantly white in terms of the athlete base and not paying attention to the very few sports that are predominantly African-American that are not revenue generating, right? So you get the sort of same phenomenon that you see at a lot of universities that pay a lot of attention to getting in athletes in squash or fencing or other predominantly white sports when they could be devoting more resources and effort and attention to recruiting more African-American athletes and athletes of color. 
Right. No, I mean, that's a, that's a great point. Yes. So what we need to focus on is not necessarily intent. I think a lot of people get hung up on that. Oh, right. Are they intentionally racist? Are they doing this um, out of any sort of targeted malice? And, you know, my view is that that's not necessarily what we should be focused on, you know, whether they're intending to do this or not. Uh, the impact is one that has a distinct racial um, outcome and or an outcome that uh, is a racist outcome, you know, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, just uh, just to say it plainly. Now, people may say, well, you know, these other sports are getting cut too. It's that a third. Yes, that is true. But when you break it down, track and field is the cheapest sport to participate in in high school. It also it has the largest participation numbers when you include male and female participation with over one million high school uh, boys and girls participating in high and track and field. Also, track and field is one of the few sports remaining where you can literally just participate on your high school team and get recruited. Um, you can just participate in your high school's, uh, you know, dual meets or tri meets. Most of these other sports in college are pretty niche. And in order to get uh, into college, uh, you need to be a part of sports leagues or travel teams. You need to have a sports consultant. You need to go to tournaments. All these incur a financial cost. And so there is a barrier to entry. Um, there is a price tag associated with a lot of these college scholarships for a lot of these other sports. Track and field is one of the few sports that uh, actually doesn't have um, that barrier to entry. And, and to go just a little deeper, the way that you get recruited in track and field, track and field, almost all the meets throughout the country, track meets, track competitions, the results upload to a national database. Um, so a coach can easily see, um, you know, if you've ran a fast time or if you jumped far, or if you jumped high, um, that same sort of system doesn't exist for a lot of other sports. In some ways, this is personal for you. I mean, you are a former college runner, a, a champion runner, uh, a black man as well. How did you kind of come to gradually understand the impact these cuts were having on black athletes? Because I, that's, I mean, you know, I was in college and I, you know, and I was an athlete and I didn't know, you know, but you know, if, if they cut any one sport, which they were not necessarily talking about doing in the 90s, there was no way to know, like, you know, what was the, the, the reasoning behind things. So how did you just instinctively know or did you instinctively know that black male athletes were being disproportionately targeted here? Or did you, you know, have conversations and that sort of come out? Or how were you just so attuned to the idea that this was affecting black athletes, black non-revenue athletes at that? You know, that's a really good question. I mean, I read um, a lot of uh, outlets like Slate. Um, and, uh, <laughs> that's what's up. Yeah, let's pump us up. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, so I, I just had um, some working familiarity. But I just had a feeling um, that, okay, uh, when Brown University, for instance, cut their track team, I had a feeling that this was going to have a outsized impact on black male athletes in particular. And so I then, you know, did some research and I looked at the rosters at uh, Brown and then saw, okay, um, the track team has more black people in it than the crew, lacrosse, soccer, and baseball teams combined. Mm. And they were going to be adding sailing, elevating sailing in track and field's place effectively. And the sailing team. That's hilarious, by the way. <laughs> it's, 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 uh, and, and the funniest thing is the university hired a consulting firm in order to help them make this decision. I was like, who, who's wow. getting paid? Way too much money to make a stupid decision. I'm sorry. You know, that's kind of how I felt. You know, and like me and my unemployed self at the time, because I, um, I had just gotten laid off. So that's why I had enough time to do, a re do research and write, um, write an op-ed and everything. I was able to figure this out in about a day's worth of research. So I don't understand how people who are supposed to, that's supposed to be their profession of uh, working with uh, universities in the higher education space and spent however many months and got paid however many hundreds of thousands of dollars gave a recommendation that led to such a poor decision. So Brown, when they announced 
these changes said actually that finances didn't have anything to do with it. Their stated rationale was that they had too many sports programs and that they wanted to do this to ensure that the ones that were still at the varsity level were more competitive. And they said that diversity was an important factor for them. And then when you and others called them out for this decision, they reversed it. Do you think that that's an example of a school recognizing their mistake when they were called out? Like, do you think that it was like a screwed up process? You know, the consultants did a bad job or whatever, and then it was all like, um, it all ended up well in the end? Or do you feel like it's not kind of as as rosy as that um, storyline would suggest? You know, I do want to give credit where it's due. I mean, they made a mistake, but they did course correct and they did it. They did so rather quickly. So a week after I uh, pinned my article in Medium, uh, they reversed their decision. And in their announcement, they actually admitted that um, they did not realize the impact that cutting track would have on diverse opportunities. So I do give them credit for acknowledging that fault and course correcting in that way. The other universities, um, University of Minnesota and uh, Women Mary, when they reinstated their teams, well, Minnesota didn't have a press release at all. They just kind of went to sweep it under the rug. Woman Mary's was a little bit more complicated because the AD left or you know, may have been asked to leave. And then there was a new AD that came in. Um, and then all of those sports that were cut actually were reinstated. And so um, there wasn't necessarily an explicit reasoning that I saw that noted um, diverse opportunities being withheld by cutting a track and field. But, you know, they did reinstate all the programs that got cut, which was pretty great. Minnesota's action is kind of similar to something that Brown did. And let me explain. So Brown, when they initially announced that they were cutting uh, these sports, they said that they were doing so to improve competitiveness, but also to improve the diversity amongst their, all their sporting offerings at the club and varsity level. They, in stating that, they were banking on people's just kind of frank ignorance, frankly ignorance about how sports and college work. And they kind of conflated club sport and varsity sport. Club sports are not sponsored by the athletic department. They do not get institutional funding in a, in a significant way. They do not get admission spots, whereas varsity athletics does. So the men's track team was going to be demoted to club, which would have, in effect, diversified the club offerings. And so when the university said that they were going to be this decision would help to improve diversity, that was what they were talking about. But they were really hoping that people didn't necessarily understand the nuances between club and varsity athletics. What seems manifestly ridiculous here, of course, is that the cost of running a college track program at the varsity level is basically a rounding error in a football budget at a place like Clemson or even at a place like Minnesota. Um, and this is, of course... But that's different than William and Mary, right? It is different than William and Mary, and it's different to Brown. I mean, Brown had 38 varsity sports, the most in the country, I believe. So you have this, there, there are different issues at each of these universities. I mean, I, th I think at the at the big schools, the criticism really should be that they should be supporting all these sports. You could, you could, you could easily continue to fund track at Clemson, it seems to me while making some modest reductions during this crisis time of the pandemic in football. Um, and at the other schools, you know, we had a conversation on the show a few weeks ago about UC Riverside in California considering eliminating all Division I varsity sports and moving to a club system. Um, it's really incumbent on the universities. They could still admit the same level of student 
and athlete if they chose to, but they choose to use sports as a mechanism to admit students of color very often. Yeah, no, those are those are great points. A few a few things. So I think there needs to be a renegotiation uh, of the relationship between sport <laughs> um, and college, and how you know these universities view uh, the role of sports at colleges. And too often we uh, colleges look at, especially the Power Five schools, look at college, look at sport as something that needs to pay for itself. When in actuality, we know that there are only a few sports that pay for themselves. Um, it's football men's basketball and at select programs, women's basketball at certain places, um, and then a few other programs um, at a few different places like ice hockey um, pays for itself at uh, University of Minnesota, but barely. Um, they were in the green by about $50,000, you know, so not an extreme amount of money, but they do pay for themselves. Um, but most other sports do not pay for themselves. You know, it's possible to make the argument that, okay, track programs aren't making money. So uh, if we're being like, you know, cold uh, uh, capitalist, then let's, uh, let's cut them and just put in things that, uh, that generate money. But there's also, it's also possible to make a critique of this from the opposite direction, which is that um, the athletes that are making money for these schools are predominantly black men's basketball and football players. And that what you're asking for is a transfer of money that those athletes generate to, you know, whether it's a sailing team or a gymnastics team or a track team, all, you know, athletes that aren't generating revenue. So why shouldn't we be arguing that that money should just go to the football and basketball players that are making it? Like, why should it go to, to track athletes who aren't making money for their universities? That's a great question. And um, I don't think those things are mutually exclusive. I think that uh, the uh, these football and basketball players should be getting money for the value that they are generating. At the same time, I also think that these universities should take it upon themselves to supporting programs that afford diverse opportunities. Because here's the thing. People will say, well, track needs to pay for itself. Most other sports in college do not pay for themselves. So what happens is that uh, the football... Like you're not asking for track to get special treatment. It's just like the same treatment that other sports get. Yeah, I mean, these other sports are getting subsidized by the football and basketball teams, and they are majority white. And so you have a wealth transfer currently happening where these black football and basketball players, overwhelmingly, about 60% of the NCAA D1 are men's basketball players are black, and about 50% of the football players are black, which is an overrepresentation, you know, uh, because black... People are about 13, 14% of the U.S. Uh, population in total. That money that they're generating is going, is being spun up into coaches compensation, being spun up into lavish palatial um, locker rooms and, and facilities upgrades, and is being spun up into helping to bolster these majority white, mostly affluent sports programs uh, at these universities. And so I'm saying, okay, there are two things that need to happen. One, we need to figure out how we can help these athletes get their value, <laughs> get their worth. And it's their worth is more than just a $50,000 or $70,000 scholarship if they're producing, you know, $800,000 of, you know, a value per student um, to the university. But then also, since the value that they're generating is currently helping to support majority white programs, at the very least, that value should be used to support the only black students who are on this campus or who are on these campuses who do not produce revenue for the university. Because let me be clear, what is happening and what these universities are effectively saying is that if you are a black student athlete and you do not make money for us, we can cut you because we do not 
find you valuable. However, most of our white student athletes who do not make uh, money for us, we view them differently. The relationship that we have to them is different. We view that it's important for them to have uh, an education via sport and that they're having the experience. They're not asked to pay for themselves in the way that, uh, you know, these black athletes are, are being asked to do. I think we can put a pin in it there. Obviously, the ongoing fallout from the pandemic and the economic crisis will be an, an ongoing issue in college athletics. And we'll bring Russell back to talk about it, especially if he can save the Clemson men's track team, which uh, is his ongoing project right now. So you can follow Russell at, is it Dancing Dinks? Is that your, your Twitter handle? That Russell? is my Twitter handle. Yes, it is. <laughs> is, this a, is that because you dance? I'm surprised you didn't go with Running Dinks. But You know, it, yeah. So um, I used to, in college, I used to always dance in between the uh, workout reps um, to keep my mind <laughs> off of the pain. That was about to happen. So that's, uh, that was my nickname from my college teammates. Oh, man. Real superhero shit. Okay, I see. <laughs> so, all right. Well, you can follow Russell at Dancing Dinks. Russell, thanks for joining us today, bro. Thank you guys for having me so much. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now it is time for After Balls. This past year, and pretty much every year recently, has been a tough one for sports journalists, with outlets getting shut down and jobs getting slashed. A lot of people we've had on this show, and will continue having on this show, have lost work. The latest round of cuts came to ESPN last week, and one of the people on the layoff list was Sam Miller. You know Sam if you're a longtime listener of the show. He was the editor-in-chief of Baseball Prospectus. He's the co-author with Ben Lindbergh of the book, The Only Rule Is It Has to Work. And for the past four years, he's been a baseball writer for ESPN. One thing people say about writers is that there's nobody else out there like them, or there's nobody else out there doing work like they do. And that cliche is almost always not true. But in Sam's case, there is no better descriptor. His brain does not work like other people's brains, and the results for baseball fans and non-baseball fans are totally delightful. When I think about him, I think about uh, the piece he wrote in 2018 about what would happen if a baseball game went 50 innings, 5-0 innings. We actually had him on the show to talk about it, and we'll link to that segment on our show page. What I love about that piece is how seriously Sam took that question as he takes all of the ridiculous questions that he uh, contrives to answer. There's a subhead, for instance, deep in the story that reads, stage four, we start to question our cruelty as spectators, innings 45 to 49. Then it goes on to discuss research on dance marathons of the 1920s. So I'm here to praise Sam for that piece, for everything else. And also to make the point that this is a cruel business just like many other businesses. And here's to hoping the next year is just a little kinder to all of us. Joel, what is your Sam Miller? My Sam Miller. So last week, Joseph Duarte of the Houston Chronicle tweeted out the 2020 football schedule for the University of Houston. And uh, I'd like to say that Joseph's tweet is the perfect capsule of the chaos that's befallen the Cougars while trying to play college football in this pandemic. So the tweet reads as follows. Rice, canceled. Washington State, canceled. Baylor, canceled. North Texas, 
canceled. Memphis, rescheduled. SMU, rescheduled. Tulsa, canceled. SMU, canceled. Overall, the 3-3 three and three Cougars haven't played a game since their 56-21 win over South Florida on November 14th. Their season finale is scheduled for Saturday in Memphis, but at this point, who knows if that game is actually going to happen or not, right? It's all a sign of the turbulent times, but for me, it's also a reminder that the Cougs have been banished to the minor leagues. On the same day as Joseph's tweet, my friend Sam Kahn Jr. and Dave Wilson published a story at ESPN.com about the demise of the old Southwest Conference, which ended 25 years ago with one win Houston taking on two, seven, and one rice. They used to be able to tie. If you're, if you're young, just so you know, you used to be able to tie in college football, okay? So two, seven, and one rice in the Crosstown Bayou Bucket rivalry. Texas versus Texas A&M was supposed to have been the final game in Southwest Conference history. You know, this matchup of ranked rivals vying for the last conference title. But instead, Rice tried to stick it to the league officials, and it scheduled the kickoff against Houston to take place 90 minutes after the Texas and A&M game began. Just, just, you know, a good bit of pettiness going out the door. So a listed attendance of 28,400, which didn't even fit, have filled the 70,000-seat Rice Stadium, was treated to a barn burner. Chuck Clements threw two fourth-quarter touchdown passes and added a two-point conversion with 119 left to give Houston an 18-17 lead. Rice missed a 38-yard field goal, college kickers, right, with 12 seconds remaining to seal the Cougs' victory. The lead of the AP's write-up of the game. The once-glorious Southwest Conference went out in style. I mean, yeah, sort of, okay? But as the Southwest Conference was going out, the Big 12 was coming in. Houston was supposed to get an invite to join the Big 12, a new mega-conference with big TV money. But that's when the Texas politics took over. Texas's governor and lieutenant governor at the time, both Baylor graduates and Democrats, if you want to know how long ago this was, lobbied their alma mater to get in over Houston. And that was that. Baylor was welcomed into the Big 12, and Houston was banished to the Conference USA. Meanwhile, Rice, SMU, and TCU were joined the Western Athletic Conference, formerly known as the WAC. But the University of Houston deserved much better, and, and let me explain. More than any other major program in Texas, if not the whole South, Houston is responsible for the desegregation of college athletics. In 1964, Houston, which was then playing as an independent, became the first major college football program in the state to break the color barrier. And that's when it signed Warren McVay to a scholarship. Houston also signed its first black male basketball players that year, Elvin Hayes and Don Chaney. Hayes and Chaney led the Cougars to consecutive Final Four berths. In football, Bill Yeoman pioneered the Vera offense and turned the Cougars into a force, making them a mainstay in the top 25. Eventually, their rivals in the state took notice and welcomed them into the Southwest Conference in 1976. And guess what? Houston won the Southwest Conference in its first season in the league. In fact, Houston won the Southwest Conference in three of its first four seasons. And remember, at this point, Daryl Royal is still the head coach of the mighty Texas Longhorns and isn't too far removed from a national championship in 1970. Just that quickly, Houston had flipped the balance of power in the league. As Houston started its decline as a football power in the 80s, the Cougars rose again in basketball and played and lost in the national championship game in consecutive seasons, 1983 and 84. By this time, allegations of cheating and other improprieties dogged Houston and the rest of the Southwest Conference. At the end of the 80s, Jack Party brought the run and shoot to Houston and thrived under the specter of probation. 
But eventually, NCAA penalties and the increasingly fractured Southwest Conference took their toll on the program. As many people who listen to this show know, I'm a Houston native, and I grew up rooting for the Cougs. They were the hometown team. They were the first team to break my heart and why I'm trying to rationalize my disdain for Jim Valvano even to this day. Imagine how it must have felt for a young Black boy to root for a college program who welcomed Black athletes before everyone else and whose biggest stars had been Black men. Clyde Drexler, Akeem Olajuwon, Carl Lewis, Andre Ware. Don Chaney even stuck around and became the head coach of the Houston Rockets. That sort of stuff wasn't happening at Texas or Texas A&M or anywhere at that point, really. The Cougars meant something to me and lots of other people in that part of the world in ways that went far beyond the games. But when the Southwest Conference left them behind in 1995, the Cougars never really recovered. They spent the next 17 years at Conference USA before moving to the American Athletic Conference in 2013. And sure, you know, they've had a few moments since then. Did you know the Cougs football team has gone 13-1 and twice in the past nine years and that the basketball team is currently ranked 10th in the nation, you know? Shout out to uh, Kelvin Sampson. Hope springs eternal for a revival in Houston. But it's not the 80s or 90s anymore. Don Chaney is retired and 74 years old, which just blows my mind to think of Don Chaney being 74 years old. And the Southwest Conference is never coming back. That tweet about the Cougar schedule, canceled, 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 is a reminder of the pandemic and how it's ruined so much in ways that seem unfair. But the thing is, it will end and college football will return to normal or something like that. But what the end of the Southwest Conference did to my team, the Cougs, that's forever. Baylor. Baylor. Dastardly. That's my response to your um, wonderful and heartfelt afterball is Baylor. Shaking my damn head at Baylor. They've done so much and done so much wrong. (laughs) Baylor, Stefan. Baylor. Also Rice. Giant football stadium at Rice. (laughs) Concrete, man. Concrete, that concrete bowl, 70,000. They hosted a Super Bowl in 1974. I know. Yeah. That game, it's it's like the perfect Joel Anderson college football game. Like the Bayou Bucket, Houston, bragging rights on the line, and also just extreme pettiness. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, whatever we can do to stick it to the horn. With obscure quarterbacks. That's right. Chuck Clements, and I, I can't remember the name of the Rice quarterback, but I know he couldn't pass. So. <laughs> That is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty and thanks for listening. <laughs>